0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. So uh, I uh, was over at Pasadena this morning and. Uh, As I started to talk, I realized uh, that uh, for some reason I was going to cough. Which is a whole different thing now. I mean, you know, you used to just go, (coughs) now you go, (coughs) and people are like, whoa. So I may cough. It could happen. Although now I'm on my seventh cough drop on the way over. I don't know if you know, but these actually have medicine in them. <laughs> yeah. a whole new, That was one of the best sermons he ever preached. I don't know what he said, but it was really deep. I always think, wouldn't it be nice if you could get just one more thing to attach to your ears? Because glasses is not enough, a mask is not enough. Let's, let's do more. Hey, it's time. It's time to start rebuilding. It's time to start rebuilding your psyche, your mental well-being, your emotional well-being, the church, your social life. I mean, we got to still be careful, whatever all that looks like, but it's time. And the scripture says where there is no vision, people perish. And if you dig into the Hebrew, it says where people are not looking up, they're looking around. Where there is no revelation of God, people look at each other, and they find each other lacking. Shocker! (laughs) That when they get discouraged about the purposes of God in the world, and they start to look around at the systems of human beings, they find themselves disappointed and distressed. (laughs) Who knew? And that sometimes it's time for us to say, you know what? If we want to get better... If we want to move on, if we want to rebuild, it's time to look up. Richard Block said, whoever can smile in the face of trouble has found someone else to blame. <laughs> you thought it was going to get deep, but it didn't. It just, it just glanced, stayed really sharp. And it's funny, but it's also true, isn't it? Because that's what's happening in our culture. We're blaming, and we're not, there's no exception inside here. We're blaming, pointing fingers and blaming. That's probably happening in our own homes and families. We want things to get deeper. We want to get going. We want to get our feet underneath us, but something's holding us back. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this little story of Nehemiah, and, and I love this story of Nehemiah because, I, I, for me, coming into pre- preparing for this series— I have an impression of Nehemiah. He's a sweet dude. He's a sweet guy. I love his story. He's a builder, man. You know, he just, he builds walls and stuff. And then I actually read the story. I mean, I've kind of highlighted and read. But, you know, sometimes when you're like, have to talk to people about something, you read it differently than when you're just reading it for your own entertainment and your own edification. And so it turns out as you begin to read the story of Nehemiah, you go, he's not as nice of a person as I thought. And this is not as sweet of a situation as I thought. And so if you just, because I know you're longing on people online are begging now, tell us the story. Please tell us the history of what's happening. Okay. So if you think about Babylon and you think about the fact that the southern kingdom has fallen and they've carried off into exile, the folks that have ended up over in Babylon. We talked last week about Ezekiel, that that group that left 11 years before the actual fall and now a whole other group. And we're told that they took the best and the brightest from Israel and they took them off to Babylon to be slaves in that kingdom. And subsequently the kingdom of Babylon falls and it falls to the great Persian Empire. And if you ever want to, you know, kind of get your head around that stuff, uh, this piece of the story where the Persians have come in and taken over from the Babylonians. That's Daniel's period. That's, that's uh, you know, Darius the king, Xerxes. Those people are all living in there. If you want to go to the Louvre in uh, uh, Paris, France, you can find uh, uh, palace finials, uh, the, the, the columns that sit on top stone, finials that sit on top of the columns to hold up the roof in the palace of Darius. They're there. They're sitting right there, you know, and I always think, hey, maybe Nehemiah stood right here. And so Nehemiah is one of the exiles. He's been carried off. But in this period of time, after the Persians take over, they find they are sympathetic towards the Israelites. And so we have the sequence of rebuilders. And there's three of them, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, Zerubbabel is the first to return, and he rebuilds the temple. So if you're keeping up with the grand scope of the story, then you're thinking about the fact that Solomon built the first temple. The Babylonians destroyed the first temple. Zerubbabel Rebuilt the temple and we entered into the second temple period. Okay, there's only two That one's going to be destroyed by the Romans in about 70 AD Okay so that's what's going on. There's about a 150 year period between the time that the Persians are sympathetic with Zerubbabel and send him back to rebuild the temple and the time that Nehemiah finishes his work. So about 150 years if you get that in there. And originally Ezra and Nehemiah, though there are two books in our Bible, were originally written together. Ezra and Nehemiah was one story. So you have Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. Now Ezra goes. And Ezra is restoring the ritual practices of the priesthood and the Levitical law. He's rereading the law because now we have a temple, but we can't operate the temple because we have to go through all the processes it takes to have all the things that are sanctified and prepared for the operation of the temple. So now Ezra go and prepares the temple. And then at the end of this little trio, we have Nehemiah. And Nehemiah now is going to go rebuild the walls of the city. And as we move into this series, we'll talk a little bit about why that's so significant. And why it matters so much. And so we have this story. But now, the story of Nehemiah is weird. It has so many weird things going on. Because we want it to be a sweet story. We want it to be a homecoming story. We want him to go back and rebuild. But what we find out is that there's a lot of weird stuff going on. And the weird stuff that's going on are the best and brightest have been carried off by the Babylonians. And some people have been left behind. And it turns out that though they're all Israelites and though they all want to rebuild the city walls, they don't like each other very much. Imagine that. Imagine that at this moment, the people who were left behind are mad at the people who were taken away. And the people who were taken away are mad at the people who were left behind. And then you have sweet Nehemiah who's standing in the middle, except he's not that nice. And sometimes he's just going to get frustrated. He's going to say, fine, you got no part in the kingdom of God, out you go. And you read this short little letter that you always thought was sweet, but it's not that sweet. (laughs) And here's the saddest part. You get to the end of this story, and you're left with this. Man, that was disappointing. That was disappointing. Because when you get to the end of this story, and they dedicate, and everything's supposed to be in the temple, and now Ezra's got the ritual stuff going, and now the walls are built, and everything's set in place. There are these sad statements that say this, but the glory of God did not return. And the Spirit of God was not in their midst. And it's not an accident, folks. The writers are trying to say to us, it's no longer about a temple in Jerusalem. It's no longer about a people called Israelites. This is an anticipation of the coming moment in which the power of God and the kingdom of God will be released to do its work. It will not be confined inside these walls anymore. In fact, this is my real impression in reading and spending time in Nehemiah these last few weeks I'm deeply convicted by it. Like, it's not a nice narrative. It's a convicting call on your life and mine. It is foreshadowing us, the church of Jesus Christ, and who we are and how we operate and what happens to us. It's a simple story. Let me read it to you, and you can get your impressions. This is the opening shot of Nehemiah and what's going on in there. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah... Son of Hakaliah, in the month of Keslev, in the twentieth year, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, so we already get the first division, those who have been to exile but they've gone back, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you we've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. (coughs) Just checking on you, see where you were. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So, so that's the opening shot. That's the opening piece of the story. And I'm moved by this opening prayer. And there's several things in it that are very convicting to me. In fact, I I sort of turn them in and say, as we think about rebuilding, the first thing is vision. And if we're going to have vision, I see six things going on there that I think matter a great deal to our story. Now. In our first service at 9 a.m. over at Pasadena, I started giving these points and then things started showing up on the screen and they were not the same. So you may have to write this down. I don't know. So just to give it some thought along the way. Number one, the first thing if we're going to have vision is this, there has to be personal space for vision. There has to be personal space for vision. It just seems to me it's such a simple little story. Some guy showed up and he said, hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they said, well, this is what's going on. And it just sort of grips him immediately. And that's convicting to me because I wonder how many needs are brought to me that don't ever get inside my psyche. I don't know what you're preoccupied with. I don't know if you're preoccupied. I am. I mean, it would take a significant thing for me to pay attention And I see for Nehemiah, there's a couple of things that would immediately get my attention. Like if I was Nehemiah, I would really not have all that much room for this little story to get so inside of me for a couple of reasons that I see would be legit. Number one, his pain. If I was Nehemiah, I would be thinking about the fact that I was in exile. That would be a big deal to me. I would be waking up in the morning going, woe is me. This is not how it's supposed to work. This is not how it was supposed to go. This was not my plan. I had big dreams. I can't believe I live here. I don't like the weather. I want to move somewhere else. I don't like how it's going. I would be preoccupied with the tragedy of my own story. And Nehemiah has plenty. He has plenty to complain about. He has plenty to be upset about. He has been carried from his homeland and plopped down in another place. He is captive. And somehow, I, I don't it seems to me that I would be preoccupied with the perpetuation of my own existence. That's what I'd be thinking about. That's what I mean, what do you think about first thing in the morning? The welfare of the world? That's what catches your attention? Depends on your age a little bit. If you're young, you wake up and you go, what do I have to do today? Oh yeah, it's school day. If you're old, you're like, I don't know. Maybe if I throw this leg over, I could roll out of bed this morning. Do that personal assessment. Is it working? (laughs) Not making this stuff up. Somehow, Nehemiah has personal space in the middle of his pain to hear something. Do you? The other temptation I would have as I was Nehemiah is I would be all caught up in my own comfort. He just gives us a little tagline at the very end, I was cupbearer to the king. la da <laughs> Which means he lives in the palace. And if I was Nehemiah... <laughs> Maybe I would have already switched. I would have gone from feeling sorry for myself to going, hey, I've done well. I'm a pretty good guy. Evidently, I'm really accomplished and smart. I've made good choices and good connections, and I've worked diligently. And I feel sad for those people back in Jerusalem, but they should have been as smart as me. They should have been as clever to me. They should have had as much ability as me because here I am living in the palace. And do I really want to go back? I don't think so. I mean, what's the chances at my age of going back and starting over and having a good life? Here I am. I live in the palace. I'm a cupbearer to the king. This is how I'm going to spend my life. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me, in the middle of what we have been through, that there is a temptation always to say this. I'm just going to circle the wagons here. I got a good family. I got good friends. I'm I'm only going to hang out with people that think like I think and believe what I think. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to narrow my world down into a comfort zone, and I'm going to live in my comfort zone. And it's convicting to me. Do I have the personal space to make room for the vision of God? Because I need room in my heart (coughs) and in my mind. Number two. is not my own plan. <laughs> it is, there was an understanding of need. <clears throat> there was an understanding of need. So this simple little story, I don't know what it would take, I don't know what would the pitch be like. I want you to you know get your head out of your own story and your own life and here's, a, you know, here's a, a presentation and it's got some video in it and there's music, it'll be awesome and it's gonna pull you in. These guys just said, hey, back there it's not that good. The walls are broken down and the, the gates have been burned. And he, he just immediately understands. He gets it. That simple little thing gets inside of his head. He intellectually identifies with what's going on. That's a big step, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, the step that says, I have personal space, but I, I get it. I, I can put myself in the situation of someone else. I can feel empathy. I can, I, can, I can have somehow in my brain, I can understand the need. I can see it and get it. And that's a whole different thing than just in the first place having some personal space for vision, that, that I would somehow intellectually be able to engage and understand what's happening in that need scenario without a lot of detail, without a lot going on. Somehow, it would appear to me to understand. Number three, he didn't just understand the need. There was an emotional connection. It was an emotional connection. He wept day and night and fasted before the Lord. If we leave everything at our intellectual level and we don't let it get down into our heart and emotions and feelings, we're not going to see much change in our world. why we may be applying that in some broad sense to the culture or the world, what would that mean in your personal story, to your personal family and relationships? If I just stop for a minute and say, I'm going to create space where I can feel, where I can see, where I can understand. I'm going to stop being preoccupied with my story. And I'm not projecting on you. I'm not projecting on you at home. Just saying for me, personally, it's convicting to read the story Because I, first of all, recognize I'm not sure how much space I have because I am preoccupied with my own story. But Nehemiah not only understands it intellectually, he engages with it emotionally. He lets it break his heart. He lets it bother him. You you know how that works, right? Because we do this. When I wake up in the morning, there are things I have to remember. Anybody else? Like this? What day is it? <laughs> Does that happen to you guys? Yeah. What is this today? Is is this a day off or is it? Oh, this is Sunday. Whoa. I guess that's why my alarm went off so early. There's a whole nother group of things that I don't have to remember. They're just there. They're just there. Because some of them live up here, and some of them live down here. And the ones that live down here, I don't have to remember. They're with me, they get right in here and squeeze me. Sometimes they squeeze so hard, it's hard to, you know. And if we're going to have vision, this process matters. There's space for it. There's an intellectual understanding of it. But it gets down in here. And then this is where the story of Nehemiah gets super weird. Number four, there was a prayer for God's involvement. Of all the unique stories in the Bible, this is weird. This does not follow the pattern. The pattern is, (laughs) go for me, and do this work, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Go, here am I, Lord, send me. That is not the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's story is he had room for the vision, it intellectually engaged him, it got inside his heart, and then he came to God and said, listen, there's a problem in Jerusalem, and I'm wondering if you're interested in doing something about it. That Nehemiah initiates the vision to God. Point five is going to go about providence to God and sovereignty of God, so don't panic. But I think it's written this way for a reason. It's consistent with the covenant of God that says, I want you to engage your world. You are the body of Christ. I want you to be the eyes and the ears and the emotions and the thoughts. I want you to engage and bring things to me and say to me, God, do you care about this? Do you care about this? Do you care about this? Because I care about this. And what if God's great plan were that His people were to engage the world like that? What if he's just waiting to unleash all kinds of power and transformation and rebuilding? He's just waiting for people like you and me to come and go, this is hurting my heart and I want it to be different. I think that's the message of Nehemiah. For a long time, the church said, here's what you can do for the kingdom of God. You can teach Sunday school, you can sing, you can play an instrument. Not the drums, that's crazy man, we used to say that, you know? No. Oh, guitars and amps in my lifetime, in this church, on this platform. I mean, we just that was controversial. We had an organ and piano. Can you imagine an organ and piano up here? But we did. We were committed. Somehow in the process we said here are the jobs you can do, here's the vision you can have. I don't think that's pleasing to God. I think what's pleasing to God is to say to each one of you, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Go into your world and engage it and be open to a personal vision of God and make room for it in your brain and make room for it in your heart and when your heart is broken, and when your understanding is twisted, come before God and say, God, please, 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 let's do something about this. Let's fix it. And if there were in a room like this a 200 people and online another 200 people, I don't know how many people are online. There were 400 or 800 visions to change the world for the good of God. Don't you think God would be pleased? But let me ask you this. How many people this morning do you think are pleading with God to come with them on their journey to change something? Because most of us are still preoccupied way over here with my own pain or my own comfort. We haven't even gotten over here to where we even understand what others are going through or what the need might be, or what the hurt might be. We certainly haven't let it get into our hearts to where we weep and fast and pray to God to make a difference. And then to plead with Him, Will you come with me? Will you come with me? Will you come with me? Point number five. There was a shared vision. God got involved with Nehemiah. Now, my theology is such that I believe God was opening the door for Nehemiah, I believe he had already prepared his heart, I believe when those people showed up he gave them the exact right words to say, to pierce Nehemiah's heart, I think God was in the middle of all of this I think God laid it all out, I think it all was planned but I also think Nehemiah could have diverted the plan at any moment and he says God will you be with me in this and God says absolutely absolutely what an astonishing reality. What an astonishing story. That Nehemiah just goes out there and he just thinks stuff and he feels stuff. And then he, and then he asks God to come in it with him and God says, All right, let's do that. Let's go do that. Let's go fix that. Let's go clean that up. Let's go rebuild that. Point number six. Nehemiah got involved. He got personally involved. We have a saying around the office. It has a tendency to end vision discussion very quickly. Here it is. To whom God gives the vision, we give the job. I don't know if you know this, but in a church, when you're running a church, lots of people have ideas. That's why you never have an idea meeting, because you don't need to. The ideas come out to you all the time. Not always good ideas, but now the number of people willing to see those ideas become reality, that's a very different number. We all know this. You have those people in your family, just idea people. You know what we ought to do. I'll tell you what we ought to do. You know what? We ought to get up early every morning. We ought to exercise. We ought to run around the block about six times. We'll do some push-ups and sit-ups. We'll make a real super healthy breakfast and It'll be great. Okay, let's do that. Well, what time are you getting up? I mean, it's always, it's always somebody else has got to get up and do all that stuff. Just, it's just a good idea. It's a good idea. We ought to have a big family dinner. Let's just have a big family dinner. Let's just bring everybody together. We'll sit around the table and eat. It'll be awesome. Who's going to make the dinner? Well, you will. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a heavy lifting job. You know, he seems, it seems like a snooty position to me. You know, I mean, I'm sure the cupbearer has a taste, so he's a wine taster, you know. He's not, probably not breaking a sweat in this job that he's doing. Living at the palace, and then what what does that mean? How many times a day does he need to be the cupbearer to the king? I mean, okay, he's a king, so maybe he's got like eight meals a day. Still, that's a lot of time off. And so he has this vision that has engaged him, and his assignment is, you're going to become a construction manager on the other side of the country. And Nehemiah says, yeah, that's what I'm going to do, because I'm not just an idea person. (laughs) When the vision got inside of me, when there was this capacity for me to see what needed to be done, when it got inside my understanding, when I could see what was going on there, it was breaking my heart. It got down in my emotions. I didn't wake up in the morning and try to remember. It was in me. And then I asked God, will you help? And he said, yes. And he came beside me in the vision and gave me the courage to approach the king And then the king says, well, what do you think we ought to do? And Nehemiah said, I think I'll go and rebuild the walls. Crazy, crazy, crazy story. It's time to rebuild. It's time in your home and in your family and in your psyche and in your emotions and in the social circle. And I don't know what that looks like going forward because there's still so much going on, but it's time to rebuild the church of Jesus Christ and we are in a rebuilding process let's be clear people say how's the church doing i i i don't know 10am it looks really good it looks way healthy i mean it's not as full as it was in march of 2020 but but you know this is critical mass it feels pretty good in here <laughs> next service it might feel different people say You know, are we connecting all the dots financially? Well, we need to catch up. I would say there's more people that seem to be given than seem to be showing up, so that's that's positive, isn't it? Not enough necessarily to support all the operations we have and to take care of all of our partners, so we're behind a little, so we're just praying and trusting that everybody's going to get back on track and fear is going to help them move in and rebuild and go, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and pay my tithe and offerings and faith promise because I need to because... The kingdom of God needs to be rebuilt and it needs the ongoing attention and care of those who've been called to do that work. I just believe this, whether it takes the next three or four months or the next year or the next two years, God needs the church of Jesus Christ to be alive and healthy and whole and a place where we create unity and love and grace and we don't fall prey to the chaos that's going on in our culture and our world. People need it. We need to come out and away from that and into a place where we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and we trust that all those other things are going to get taken care of. Because I know this. This is what happens to me. I get out there, and I get my attention on all that stuff. And I start to look at it. And I start to get overwhelmed by it. And I see what people post, and I see what they say, and I see how they treat each other. And it feels... Icky and gross and debilitating and hurtful. And my salvation is not in the Democratic Party and it's not in the Republican Party and it's not in the United States of America politics. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And I want to come week after week to a place that says, look up! Shocked that the systems are broken? They're broken! They've always been broken. It just didn't matter so much. But we ought to build something that brings us into this place where we go, thank God. Thank God. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be okay. God's got his hand on me and all things he's working for my good. What I thought was a disaster. What my enemies intended for evil, you've used for good. That's the story of this redemptive story. I shouldn't be allowed to have things. It's just not. And what's true about this church of Jesus Christ, it's true about you. It's true about your thoughts. It's true about your inner spiritual whole well-being as a fully integrated human being. And you know what I mean. It's been a long time since a lot of us have felt okay. But you're going to be okay. Not because the world's okay, because it's not. And it never was. But because the God of the universe has a vision and a plan for you. For you. And Nehemiah is a great example of a person that's... And by the way... The fact that they don't ever get it together is so powerful. <laughs> Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the wall, and there's a great celebration. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, and Ezra's restored everything. But the power of God and the Spirit of God did not dwell with them. And it is a foreshadowing to say, because it's no longer about the temple, and it's no longer about Israel. It's about the people of God released to do His work in the world. Don't tell me you've got to get back to Jerusalem to make it happen. That is old school We don't think like that anymore. It's about releasing the people of God and the body of Christ, the hands and feet of God, to go out into the world and change the world in his name. You, as the kingdom of God, are like the smallest seed in the garden, a grain of mustard seed. Go plant yourself. And I mean that in the nicest way. Go plant yourself. Go bloom where you're planted, where you work, the people you associate with. Go there. Forget about saving the world. Forget about saving the culture. It's not your job. It's God's job. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He'll take care of the world. You and I, we just got to get our eyes off of all of this and back into this place where there's a personal space for vision, where I can let it in. I can feel it inside of me. We're going to invite God into it with me, where we share this vision. And then I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to show up. I'm going to, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I'm going to start a program at work. I'm going to start this at school. I'm going to do this thing. Because this is how the kingdom grows. A little bit of yeast. Work through all the dough. Seems hopeless. (coughs) But it rises. It rises. (coughs) I'm going to invite the band to come back up. (coughs) We're going to close sharing communion together. So you can get those packets out. I love the imagery of closing with this moment. I think God gives it to us to say, listen, we didn't just say some words. We didn't just open the word. We're going to respond to it. And if you're at home and and we didn't give you fair warning, first Sunday communion, grab whatever you need to grab to share communion. And maybe just a simple response today to think about a few things. Number one, this table is for the followers of Jesus Christ, those who have confessed for their sins and received forgiveness. If you've never done that, we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. And we'd invite you to join us. And then the reality in these moments, that this is a surrender. This is a symbol that says, listen, I am not smart enough, strong enough to make it all happen. And I've shared this with you before. You don't ever sit down to eat a meal and say, you know what needs some nourishment today, my left leg. You don't, you just eat and you trust that your body is going to take the nutrition and the strength wherever it needs to go. This is the same symbol. I'm going to need the power of God to do work in me that I, don't, I probably don't even know what it is. Maybe acutely you know something today. Do this, God, please. Nourish this from the inside out. So often we're trying to get it in through here, you know. Let me think about it and analyze it. And if it passes all of those barriers, maybe somehow it'll get into my soul and spirit and it'll change me. And I think Jesus said, you're probably going to need something that is different. Just eat it and trust that from the inside out, God's going to do deep work in your soul and in your spirit to nourish things. (coughs) So as we pray and dedicate these elements, my prayer for you is that you just pray that simple thought. Like Nehemiah, would you help me have personal space for the vision you have? Will you get it inside my head and then down in my heart? Will you come beside me as you grant me vision? Will you share in it? And I'm willing. I'm willing to get involved in whatever way you call. Let's pray. God, thank you for the power of your word and how it's manifest in our lives in such incredible ways. How it never ceases to challenge and convict us Stories we thought we knew, lessons we thought we'd learned, and yet you bring them alive again in a fresh way. I pray over these that are gathered in this place. I ask, Lord, that you would begin to do work, whether they're here in this room or they're online. I, I pray, God, that you would begin to challenge us with what it means to rebuild, to rebuild our own lives, our own homes, our own families. But this church, it matters. Our partnerships matter. Vitality matters. Strength matters. Health matters. We want to demonstrate our faithfulness in the midst of a world that's gone crazy. We we just want to say to you, we're going to continue to do our best and we won't all think the same things, but we're all going to do it in your name and in your honor. And we're making room. We're making room. So I pray that through these elements, you would apportion grace to each person as there is need. We prepare our hearts for this table by confessing to you our sins. We're so thankful that when we confess, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And now we dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was broken for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. And now, God, as we close this service and we go from this place, would you take all that you have taught us today and bury it deep in our hearts and minds, and would you hear us as we respond to your word? We pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said together. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.